The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. The problem with conflict is not the friction. That's actually really important. That makes us better as a society, as a family. The problem is high conflict, the kind that paralyzes us, that blinds us to opportunities, and eventually makes us act against the causes we care most about without even realizing it. It's Wednesday. I'm Michael Kovnett, and this is the Next Big Idea Daily. Today, we want to talk about conflict. It's part of life, I guess, even though I'm one of those people who tries to avoid conflict whenever possible. Not that I'm proud of that, because I know to accomplish things in this world, sometimes you have to butt heads with people. Sometimes you have to stick up for yourself and voice your opinion, even when it's uncomfortable. There's a good, productive kind of conflict. But there's an unproductive kind, too, the kind that shows up as yelling, political partisanship, even war. So how do you master the good kind without falling into the bad kind? It's a topic that fascinates our guest today, Amanda Ripley, author of the book High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Amanda is a contributor to The Washington Post, and she's the co-founder of Good Conflict, a media and training company that helps people reimagine conflict. Here she is to help us reimagine it. Four years ago, I went on a quest to try to understand how people get out of really ugly conflicts, personal, political, all kinds of conflict, because it just felt like we were stuck as a country in conflicts that weren't going anywhere interesting on social media and politics and the news. But I found out that I was asking the wrong question. It's not about getting out of conflict. It's about getting out of high conflict. I ended up following people who were trapped in all kinds of disputes, a politician in California, a former gang leader in Chicago, an environmental activist in England, regular frustrated Democrats in New York City, regular frustrated Republicans in Michigan. I even talked to astronauts because it turns out there's conflict in outer space, too, on every mission. You can't avoid conflict. But I learned that there are actually two important kinds of conflict. High conflict is the kind we're seeing a lot of today. It's the kind of conflict that takes on a life of its own. High conflict can start small, but it becomes all-consuming. The original facts fade into the background, and the us-versus-them dynamic takes over. The conflict becomes its own reality, and our brains behave differently. High conflict is invisible, but like gravity, it exerts a pull on everything else. And anything you do to try to end high conflict usually makes it worse. These people I followed were, at some point, trapped in high conflict. And they aren't anymore. And they didn't give up. They didn't change their minds. They're still fighting for what's right. They're just much better at it and much less miserable. Because they created what I came to know as good conflict. Good conflict can be heated and stressful, but actually goes somewhere worth going. It's a way of fighting smart, of fighting with dignity, with curiosity. Decades of research has shown that the problem with conflict is not the friction. That's actually really important. 
That makes us better as a society, as a family. The problem is high conflict, the kind that paralyzes us, that blinds us to opportunities, and eventually makes us act against the causes we care most about without even realizing it. So what causes high conflict? Why do some conflicts stay manageable and others implode? It turns out there are four specific conditions that tend to lead to high conflict. These are the things to watch out for, to avoid at all costs in your personal and professional life if you want to stay in good conflict. I describe all four of these conditions in the book, but one example is humiliation. Humiliation is the most powerful, underappreciated force in politics, international relations, gang violence, homeowner association disputes. Every intense conflict I've looked at, humiliation was present. It's the nuclear bomb of the emotions, as the psychologist Evelyn Lindner puts it. Here's one example about two powerful men you've probably heard of who had a falling out. The history books say their conflict was over ideology, differences about the role of the federal government. But I'm not convinced that's the whole story. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson met as delegates to the Continental Congress, the body governing America's 13 colonies. Adams was short and sarcastic. He talked a lot, lost his temper easily. Jefferson was tall and elegant. He was diplomatic, reluctant to offend. And yet, the two men became fast friends. Adams saw the younger Jefferson as a sort of protege. He persuaded him to draft the Declaration of Independence, which both men signed. They often disagreed about policy, but they did it with warmth and respect. Then, in 1796, one political party backed Jefferson for president, while the other got behind Adams. The campaign got ugly. Adams won, as expected, but Jefferson came uncomfortably close to beating him. To Adams, this public challenge from his protege, no less, felt like a humiliation. Researchers have found that feelings of rejection and humiliation activate the same parts of the brain as physical pain, which is why they're often called social pain. And social pain usually causes people to withdraw and become aggressive in response which then fuels high conflict. After the election, Jefferson felt uneasy. He drafted a letter to Adams to smooth things over, emphasizing his continued friendship, loyalty, and respect. It was a good idea. But another person told him not to send the letter. This is what happens in a lot of conflicts. Third parties, sometimes known as conflict entrepreneurs, can make things worse. In this case, the other person was James Madison, and he was worried the letter might get leaked somehow, and Jefferson's supporters might not like its conciliatory tone. So Jefferson never sent the letter, which is a pity. In 1800, Jefferson ran for president again. The campaign was even nastier. Both sides spread rumors and demeaned their opponents. Jefferson hired someone to badmouth Adams in the press, and ultimately, he won the election. On Jefferson's inauguration day, Adams, his mentor, his old friend, left Washington in a stagecoach at four in the morning. He became the first American president not to welcome his successor. For the sake of the brand new country, there was a lot they should have discussed, alliances they could have made, but that's not what happened, because this was high conflict fueled by humiliation. 
Adams and Jefferson did not speak again for 11 years. The great weakness of high conflict is that it makes the people involved kind of miserable. Most of us want it to stop on some level, but we can't figure out how. This misery creates saturation points, a moment in a conflict where the losses outweigh the gains. Sort of like hitting bottom for an alcoholic. And a saturation point can be a golden opportunity to interrupt high conflict, to turn it upside down. With a couple in a bitter custody dispute, a saturation point might happen if a child gets sick all of a sudden. The priorities can realign, identities can shift. With gang members, it might happen in the hospital after someone's been shot, especially if none of the other gang members come to visit. In politics, it can happen after a loss or a riot. This happens in war, too. In Colombia's long-running civil war, 52,000 people left the armed conflict voluntarily through the government's reintegration programs. What caused them to leave when they did? They reached their saturation points. Sometimes it was when their side experienced major casualties. Sometimes it was when their side ran low on money. It also happened, according to fascinating new research by Juan Pablo Aparicio, when the government ran ads during big sporting events, inviting rebel fighters to come home and watch the game with their families. In other words, people on the outside of a high conflict matter. Those of us who are not calling each other names on Facebook, who are not conflict entrepreneurs, Whenever an opportunity arises, we can help people realize they have reached a saturation point and invite them to come home. In 1809, a friend of both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson began to quietly scheme to get them to start speaking again. Ever so gently over the course of years, Benjamin Rush, a fellow signer of the Declaration of Independence, kept telling each man that the other was eager to reconnect. He even told Adams that he'd had a dream in which the two friends were reunited after Adams wrote to Jefferson. Was Rush telling the truth? We don't know. But here's the thing. It worked. On New Year's Day in 1812, Adams wrote a letter to Jefferson, just like in the dream. And Jefferson wrote back. For the next 14 years, the two men exchanged 158 letters. You and I ought not to die before we have explained ourselves to each other, Adams wrote. This is an example of a conflict interrupter, the opposite of a conflict entrepreneur. These people exist in every zip code, every time zone, and they can wield enormous power. Because of Benjamin Rush, Adams and Jefferson remained in touch until they both died on the same day as it happened, July 4th, 1826. Thank you, Amanda. Hopefully, this advice will encourage all of us to take it down a notch on social media. In fact, if you'd like to do something more productive with your social media time, try following the Next Big Idea Club. We're on all the major platforms, and we strive to be net positive, sprinkling your feed with useful and inspirational ideas from the best nonfiction writers working today. Also, check out my newsletter, which you can find via the link in the episode notes of this show. Come on back tomorrow when we'll continue looking at conflict, and specifically, we're going to talk about tribalism. Generally speaking, we think of it as a bad thing, but there's a way we can turn our tribal instincts into something good in the world. Our guest will be evolutionary biologist David Sampson, and I hope you'll join us. See you then. See you then.